Hi, I'm Sarah Elzis. I'm Alison Hurd, welcoming you to Spotlight on France, a new podcast from Radio France International in Paris, bringing you that bit closer to this country and its people. This week, a conversation about reparations for black Europeans and how racism is still not sanctioned in France as much as it is elsewhere. And for dessert, apple pie. A no-deal Brexit will hit a lot of French exports, wine, of course, but it turns out that most of Britain's apples come from France. We talked to an apple grower in the Loire Valley. So, Alison, rumor has it that President Emmanuel Macron is close to burnout. Seriously? That's what's being reported via anonymous sources from the Elysee. He's lessivé, washed out, as they say, at the end of his rope. Well, he is coming off uh, an 80-day tour of France, isn't he, where he was meeting with people from all over the country as part of this ongoing great debate, this attempt by the government to give people a voice. Yeah, and he launched this debate because of the Yellow Vest. That's the protest movement that started back in November. It started as a protest against attacks on diesel. It's now grown into a bigger anti-government movement. And what seems to unify the many disparate groups is Macron. They really don't like him. Macron démission, Macron step down. You'll hear this in protests and gatherings all around the country. People hold signs saying Macron dégage, clear out Macron. And this anger is really focused on him personally. People see him as the president of the rich. Kind of makes sense. He did, after all, scrap the wealth tax in October of 2017. Now, the government has promised to draw some conclusions from this great debate a bit later this month. And it's unclear if he'll be able to satisfy everyone. And this really might be what's burning him out. Already, those traveling with the president say they're burned out by the president's energy. Well, he's a micromanager, isn't he, Sarah? He's got more energy than everyone else around him, or at least up till now he had. Indeed. So who knows what effect, if any, all of this with the debates, with this burnout it'll have on the protest movement. We're entering into week 22 of the Yellow Vests. One of the things we'll be doing here on this podcast is giving you a look into stories that you might not have heard about if you don't understand French. Michael Fitzpatrick spends a lot of his time combing through the French newspapers. Michael, what caught your eye this week? Well, a story from the centrist uh, daily Le Monde uh, it concerns a yellow vest court case. There have been a lot of those. So that's not particularly unusual. Uh, 20 weeks into this movement, uh, there, there have been something like 2,000 sentences handed down. But the guys in this particular case were somewhat special. There were nine of them. They came from the town of Montargis, which is about 100 kilometers south of the French capital. And uh, what they were accused of, they admitted the, the, that they were actually guilty, but guilty of spending a night building a wall to block up the door of the local tax office in Montargis. This isn't a April Fool's joke, is it? No, no. The I, first thing I thought of was maybe this is uh, the... the uh, Le Monde dated April the 1st, but no, dated April the 3rd. And they got taken in for building a wall. The police just happened in a routine patrol to be passing by and they thought, that's strange, there's people building a wall outside the door of the tax office and uh, the boys had also blocked up the security exits. P purely symbolical act, uh, they said. They didn't damage anything, they weren't looking for trouble. When the police came, uh, they gave themselves up, they confessed that they had uh, done it and uh, they were taken into custody, and they described their time in police custody as a bit of a laugh. So then they ended up in court. What happened? Well, the prosecutor, and that's the, the guy who uh, actually represents the state, us, and he's uh, normally outraged, and he calls for the death penalty at least. 
Uh, Although not in France, of course. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. In this case, he actually um, became almost lyrical in his praise of the accused. He said that these were responsible citizens who had uh, shown and accepted uh, their act, and uh, he thought they were wonderful guys. Perhaps and, uh, a yellow vest sympathizer. Uh, maybe, though uh, that would be strange for a state prosecutor, but maybe, uh, maybe <laughs> a, a closet yellow vest. But, but an interesting uh, point of justice here, where things don't normally go this way. Especially since so many of these yellow vest trials have been public demonstrations by their friends and relatives in the gallery, uh, who've actually worn their yellow vests into the courtroom as an attempt to keep the protest and the demonstration going. What was this protest? Why were they blocking up the tax office? Well, a lot of people feel uh, that the tax in France is unjust and unfairly distributed across the uh, society. These were very poor people. The best off of them described his personal monthly income as 500 euros made from various odd jobs and 900 euros from uh, Social Security. And he was the richest man in the group of nine. Uh, they feel that they, the poor, are being overtaxed, and so they blocked up the tax office as a way of saying, stop. But Michael, nothing was broken, not even a window, there was no violence. Why were they actually taken into court? Was it, what, the, the cost of cleaning it up? Well, it didn't cost very much. 249 euros and 49 centimes, that's, that's would you precise. believe. That's very precise. And uh, the prosecutor admitted that it was the sort of job that could be cleaned up with just a brush of a damp sponge. Uh, but they um, they had broken the law, and uh, so they were brought before the court. But they got off. Effectively, the uh, minimum sentences were handed down. Three months uh, suspended, so nobody will go to jail. And uh, the decision by the court, uh, issued by a judge who, according to Le Monde, did a lot of smiling. And that's something that judges in French courts don't often do, certainly not in these yellow vest uh, trials. Well, this is an interesting, an interesting case, an unusual one, although interesting to point out that there are events like this happening all over France that perhaps aren't making the papers as you know dramatically as uh, burning down restaurants in, in Paris. And maybe, you know, to some extent, going back to the roots of this yellow vest movement, which did start in rural and, and suburban parts of France. Thanks there to Michael Fitzpatrick. Sarah, French cinema lost a huge figure uh, a week ago. Agnès Varda, one of the pioneers of French new wave cinema, died aged 90 last Friday. She was the only woman director in the New Wave group, alongside people that we know all about, Jean-Luc Godard, François Truffaut and Eric Romer. Despite winning the Golden Lion Award in 1985 for the film Vagabond, she got plenty of critical praise for the film Clio from 5 to uh, 7 in the early 60s, but her films on the whole never made her much money. She loved filming ordinary people, like in the documentary film Faces and Places that she made with the artist photographer J.R. Travelling across rural France in 2017, she got an Oscar nomination for that. But it wasn't just about her movies, right? I get the impression that she really impacted people just uh, based on who she was. Yeah, totally. People like me, you know, I'm not a big cinema buff, but Agnès Varda, she was, she was strong feminist. She was also really witty and wacky. Uh, such a character stood out from the crowd. She was small. She was a bit on the round side. She was shapely. She had huge eyes and this characteristic pudding bowl haircut, which meant that her fringe was always a different colour from the hair on the top of her head. At the funeral in Paris this week, her son told the story of how she dressed up as a potato to wander around the Venice Biennale Film Festival, age 75. She made everyone laugh. She was such a free spirit. 
And in a very touching tribute, J.R. attached a cluster of coloured balloons to an effigy that he'd made of her and sent her off into the clouds. Time to go back in history now. This week, 225 years ago, on April 5th, 1794... Georges Danton was guillotined. Georges Danton, known perhaps by Anglophones as Danton, uh, he was one of the leaders of the French Revolution, but he fell foul of Robespierre, and generations of French kids have grown up learning about Danton as the goody and Robespierre as the baddie. Most probably that's too black and white, but it's safe to say that Danton was the less bloodthirsty of the two. A few months before he died in February 1794, he and two other MPs introduced a bill to end slavery across France, even though it crept back under Napoleon. It wasn't abolished for good until 1848. Why do you think it's worth remembering him still even today? Well, Sarah, in a country like France, which loves public speaking, speaking well, standing up, may I say perhaps showing off, Danton was a very good public speaker, and many French people today still know and quote his famous phrase, we need audacity, more audacity, always audacity. He also refused to accept the reign of terror, which was brought in by Robespierre, and during which 17,000 people were guillotined, mostly without trial. Uh, that could be seen perhaps as a better model than the off-with-his-head approach. The revolution itself has inspired some yellow vest protesters, especially at the beginning of the protests in November last year. Some of them, you could see them wearing the red uh, Phrygian bonnets that became popular after the storming of the Bastille. They were also seen brandishing revolutionary placards. Whether they were actually thinking of Danton or Robespierre is less clear, though. France is known for its social model of equality. We're all the same, we don't have different communities, and yet, of course, these communities do exist, and they do organize themselves. Yes, Sarah, like the CRAN, that stands for the Representative Council of Black Associations. It's an advocacy group. Uh, It calls out racism against black people. It wants recognition for racial statistics, which, by the way, are not allowed in France, and it's pushing for slavery reparations. I reached their president, Gislain Védeux, who recently took over. He's a young guy, he's a former football player in the UK. And we started out by talking about Sibet Ndiaye, who was appointed this week as the government spokesperson here in France. It was a mini cabinet reshuffle. She spent nearly five years as Macron's media advisor, and she's gotten criticism for her blunt words, her dismissiveness of journalists, but she's also come under fire for being who she is. She was born in Dakar, naturalized French in 2016. And on social media, there's been an onslaught of comments about her appearance, her Afro hairstyle, and the day she took over the post. Vidu told me he's not surprised about the outpouring of racism. It's quite a classic now. Before her, we had other high-level politicians like Christian Taubira, who was insulted. Now the question is why the government is quiet because um, these things still happen, is because there is not a big sanction. You lived in the UK for a while. Um, You played football there. What's the difference? How do you see the difference between how things work in the UK and here in France? Oh, the difference uh, with the UK is strong. uh, In England, everything starts with sanction. For example, when I was a player, I, I used to play for Tottenham, I received some racist attack inside of the club, and the guy who did that was just sacked. There is no debate about that in England. You don't, you don't think that would happen here in France? We have a lot of examples here in France 
where there is uh, some uh, racist attack, some Afrophobia attack in football, in a political area, in all uh, different uh, area of social area without sanction. We're talking about right now about uh, this um, nomination about uh, Sibendiai. But last year we had, uh, for example, we, we took in the court the player Balotelli. He was insulted publicly. We went to the court and nothing happened. This is the main difference. If this kind of thing happened in England, there is an immediate sanction. But here in France, it's a kind of a taboo. And they just don't want to talk about that and to see that. The, the CALM, your organization, um, started in on this issue of reparations. Because, of course, when we're talking about racism against black people, there's a real history there, of course, in, in slavery. And there have been lawsuits in France. Uh, a lot of that's raised some awareness, gotten some justice. Recently, at the end of March, the European Parliament passed a resolution calling for reparations. This is something you'd worked on. And can you talk about what these reparations are What are, and, and what is this resolution? Yeah, it's the first time uh, the member of uh, European Parliament did a, a resolution uh, for the right of uh, people African descent in Europe. That means that uh, all European countries must implement concrete action by pushing uh, to fight against the rise of racism and crime, the lack of equality, to fight against, uh, you know, police violence, uh, racial profiling, and underrepresenting of uh, people of Afro descent in politics, racial discrimination. So basically, it's recognizing a kind of systemic racism that stemmed from the history. But the, the reparations, of course, don't really seem to be talking about like financial restitution in the way that we sometimes hear about reparations. Inside the revolution, you have some specific action. And um, reparation is one of specific action. In France, we start this work about reparation. And in reparation, we have restitution. Uh, of course, it's about European country, but we cannot talk about that without talking about African country. And when we start uh, talking about um, repression, it's because the traditional authority ask for it. They ask for it from Europe. Yes, for example, when we had the first demand, the first demand were from Benin. Uh, the, the king of uh, Benin, because you got a president, but you got a king, wrote a letter asking straight to the French government to give back what they stole. Like artifacts and art objects. Yes. And this is very, very important because uh, if you want to talk uh, about the reparation, we cannot say that uh, this is from the diaspora. No, it's from the traditional authority in Africa. And uh, this is important to do uh, this, this work all together. Well, so then given this idea of reparations with Africa, with Afro-descendants in Europe, looking at the European resolution again, what is the impact? It appears to be a non-binding resolution. So it's, you know, symbolic that they made these statements and said that. But what's next? Today, uh, what we can do with uh, this uh, European resolution, we can go to each country they are forced to put some concrete action in each country. The main concrete action being done are from the civil society. Or um, reaction to say, okay, civil society are doing their work. Now, the government, at the top level of the government, they have to do their work too. That was Ghislain Védeux, the president of the CRAN, the Representative Council of Black Associations. <laughs>
Alison, let's get on a train now and leave Paris. Yes, Sarah, I headed to the Loire Valley this week. That's 280 kilometers southwest of Paris in search of apples. It's not a bad place to start. It is known as the Garden of France, right? In the Loire, the kings had their summer houses, their chateaus there. Yeah, and it has a very temperate climate, so it's great for growing fruit and veg. The region produces around 400,000 tons of apples every year. That's a quarter of France's overall production. And guess what? More than a third of them are exported to the UK. Uh, I think I know what's coming here. It's the B word. Correct. Now, <laughs> if the UK crashes out of Europe with a no-deal Brexit, will those delicious, crunchy French apples still find their way over the channel and into kids' lunchboxes? So I went to a testing centre for apples called La Morinière. It's about a half-hour drive from the city of Tours, and I found myself gazing at this weird machine. So there were dozens of golden delicious sitting on a kind of merry-go-round, and that plopping sound you can hear is an apple dropping down into a chamber where things like weight, firmness, size, acidity, juiciness, and above all, perhaps, sweetness, all get measured. And the criteria vary according to the different markets, says U Dekombeck, who's the centre's director. Each market has its own specificities and wants uh, something. For example, in England, they usually prefer golden delicious, but green golden delicious. Yeah. And I think the other apple that's very popular in the UK is the Granny Smith's, is that yes. right? Yes, also. Yeah. So here behind you, crates and crates of Granny Smith's, these big, very green apples. The UK market then, what do they really like the most? Then the most, then they like uh, when the shining apple and green, golden, delicious. And then I got taken around the orchards where the apple trees were in full bloom. Now, Sarah, this is a really delicate time because you can still get late frost in March and April, which can kill off all the flowers. So to counter that, the centre lights huge candles at night and then uses wind turbines to waft up that hot air to raise the temperature above zero. Well, that's quite an operation to keep yeah. the, the air warm there. Now, I would have thought that the UK produces its own apples, right? How have they ended up importing so much from France? To cut a long story short, the Brits have gradually developed a sweet tooth and around 40 years ago they began importing sweeter varieties as Jean-Louis Moulon, an apple grower and head of a local apple growers syndicate, told me. The apples we export to the UK are quite sweet. Golden Delicious, Granny, Gala and Pink Lady are the main varieties. They suit the climate conditions we have here in the Loire Valley. We've got sun, heat, cool mornings that give them their character. The UK has a history of growing more acidic apples like Cox's Orange Pippin, which suit their climate and soil. The British consumer has got used to eating apples from the Loire Valley. Now, Brexit can't bode well for any of this. How worried are these apple growers about the prospect of a no deal? Very worried. If the UK crashes out, it'll revert to uh, WTO rules, there'll be more customs checks, the whole thing will take longer. Moulin says it currently takes about 50 seconds for a lorry to go through customs in Calais, but if, if they end up having to show just one document when they go through, it's been calculated, that will double the time, and that will then lead to tens of kilometres of tailbacks. It will have an impact on the price, on the haulage firms. 
Some hauliers have already told us they'll lose time on these journeys and might not want to continue. We're really worried how things are going to work at the border. But we're going to have to sort this out together, unfortunately. Well, they could get stuck with all these apples, right? What other markets are there that'll take them? Well, they've already lost one big market, Algeria, with the economic crisis due to the drop in oil. Algeria is looking more to its own home production. And then there's the Russia embargo going back to 2014, which put an end to that market. Now, they're looking for other ones. They're developing in South America, increasingly in Asia. Asia. They've even started exporting to China. But all of this takes time. And in the meantime, Moulin says he just isn't willing to let go of the Brits. He seems genuinely attached to them. As an apple grower, if you're pessimistic, you should change jobs. We've always known how to overcome adverse weather conditions. You've seen that in the way we reduce the impact of frost in the orchards. So now we've got to overcome these transport constraints. We've been working with our English friends for 40 years, and you can't stop that overnight. So the Apple industry clearly still wants to believe in the possibility of a Brexit deal. Now, some people have suggested that France stands to gain from a no deal, possibly picking up business from the city, for example. But maybe France also has a lot to lose. We've seen fishers in the port of Boulogne recently. They're very anxious over losing access to British waters. We've seen French customs officers striking just this week over staff shortages, and that impacted on Eurostar. And with yellow vest anger still out there bubbling, this could all make for an explosive cocktail. Quite what will happen, we don't know, but we'll have a better idea next Friday when the second Brexit deadline falls. That's it for today here on Spotlight on France. We will be back next Friday for more on Brexit, of course, and other stories. This has been a production of Radio France International's English service. You can find us on rfienglish.com. And if you like this program, we encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 